You'll turn to Daniel, the book of Daniel, chapter 2. And um, I've called the sermon the beginning of the end. I fought all day thinking of different titles for it. Uh, the beginning of the end. Uh, this is an unusual chapter, and you won't understand everything about it that you could, that you will, when we get through the book of Daniel. But you'll come back to this chapter over and over again as we're going through the book of Daniel. And you'll understand that as we uh, study it. Uh, last time we talked about Daniel and his three friends who uh, were uh, brought into Babylon uh, the Babylonians had destroyed the temple. They went into Jerusalem and they killed a lot of people. And, and now here's Daniel in this foreign land along with his uh, three friends especially that are pr very prominent especially in this sermon and the one next week. Uh, and uh, we also talked about God being in control of history. And in many ways, that's, uh, that's one real reason to study the book of Daniel will never really experience the peace of God promised in Scripture until we're in a situation where we really have to trust God for our lives. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce, I remember where I was in California at uh, Calvary Chapel. Pastor Chuck uh, made a call. He said, I have an announcement. James Montgomery Boyce, in my day, one of the best commentary writers. Of course, we still have his commentaries and uh, one of the best preachers of the day, they had just got notice that he uh, had gotten cancer and probably wasn't going to make it, and he didn't. And uh, it's uh, sad, glad he's in heaven, and he's still one of the greatest preachers in heaven. Uh, but he wrote these words, and I really like these words. He wrote, if God does not control our lives uh, from the actions of kings and presidents, and prime ministers, and, and others in positions of power to the most minute circumstances, then everything in life is uncertain. We're victims of circumstances, and whatever happens will happen, case sera, sera. We are victims of circumstances, and whatever happens will happen, case sera, sera. But if God is sovereign, as the Bible declares Him to be, and if he is our God, if the promises he makes and the actions he takes are certain of fulfillment, then we can be confident of the future and know that we'll be able to live our lives in a way that will please God. And that should be what we want to do. I talked on Sunday about the fear of God. What is the fear of God? It's wanting God to be proud of us, to be, to be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant at that last day in our lives. So we're in Daniel chapter 2, and uh, it reads this way. So you follow in your Bibles. We'll be going through every verse of the chapter. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and that's an understatement. And he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers, we'll talk about the astrologers in a minute, to tell him what he had dreamed. Now, just in case you've read a lot of commentaries, he had not forgotten his dream. He just didn't trust these men. And therefore, obviously, if they could tell him his dream, he could trust what they had to say. So when they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, and he was not in a good mood. I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. And then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic. It, it just The idea is that the first part of Daniel is written in Hebrew, and then from, chapter, from this chapter to the end of chapter 7, it's in Aramaic. Aramaic is just like Hebrew. It's the same kind of language, and uh, it's the language Jesus spoke. Everybody understood it in that day. So here's what the astrologer said. O king, live forever. Tell your servants a dream, and we will interpret it. Now, these astrologers were impressively brilliant men, a cross between religious priests and scientists. Here's an example 
a real example of an astrologer of Daniel's day, 2,600 years ago, without computers. And I'm, I'm quoting, the Babylonian astronomer, Nabarimanu, I guess, 500 B.C., so 500 years before Christ, calculated the length of a year as 365 days, 6 hours, 15 minutes, 41 seconds, only 26 minutes and 55 seconds too long, and that's slightly just over 4 seconds a day. That's amazing. Plus, they had books of meanings to interpret dreams. And if Nebuchadnezzar had told them the dream, they would have come up with a meaning that sounded right to the king and would have pleased them. But they were about to hear some words that would put terror into their brilliant minds. Verse 5. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. This is not going to be changed. He's He's somewhat angry. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. And it's not a metaphor. He meant it, every word of it. And they knew it. And a king in that day could do that. That was no problem. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you'll receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. <laughs> Verse 7, once more they replied, well, let the king, I'm trying to, as I read this, I'm trying to think about, are their voices shaky? No, they're trying to hold themselves together. Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. And the king answered, and this tells you everything about his attitude, I am certain that you're trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. In other words, he's saying, I know you don't know what you're talking about. So if you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream, and I will know. In other words, he knew what he dreamt. I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. Notice the small g. And they do not live among humans. Verse 12, this made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. And men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends and put them to death also. When you're studying the Bible, please take the time to carefully read these Old Testament stories and try to feel the tension and the fear along with the faith. We'll see it next week especially, with the faith of those in the stories. These are real people. These are real stories. Daniel and his three friends are facing Nebuchadnezzar's anger. This is incredible drama. When I study for a sermon like this, I read the story out loud dramatically, trying to imagine what Daniel and his friends were going through, trying to imagine the fear of the king's advisors as they were preparing for an unavoidable and cruel death. So here we are in verse 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him, these two words are important, with wisdom and tact. Now remember, Daniel's a very young man, a teenager, maybe just out of his teens by a year or two, but very young man. And he, he's, he's, he asked the man, Arioch, uh, uh, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact, and he asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh Decree. Now, try to understand this. 
Arioch isn't his own man. Nobody is. The king's in charge. Arioch's out to make sure all these people are killed because Arioch doesn't want to be killed himself, and he knows if he doesn't do it, he's going to be in trouble. But he's listening to Daniel because he sees something in Daniel that he's never seen before. And so then he explained to Daniel. He took the time to explain to Daniel everything that the king had said. Now, now think about Daniel's composure here in going to the king. He's going to go to the king. And that day, if you appear before a king without the king's invitation, most of the time you would just have you killed. You didn't walk in on a king. And, uh, and Daniel didn't have the next 10 chapters to read as we do. <laughs> so we know Daniel survived, but he knew many back in Jerusalem who did not survive. Only a man of total commitment and great faith in God could keep his cool in such a circumstance. And so in verse 16, we read at this, Daniel went in to the king. There's no way that, that the king's servant there, Ariel, would be with him at this point in time because he's fearful for his own life. So Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. And then Daniel returned to his house. That means that the king was so impressed with Daniel. Remember how angry he was. He didn't believe these others could do what they said they could do. But Daniel is telling him, I can do it. And the king believed him. It's amazing that he did. And then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Notice that's their Hebrew names. And then it says he urged them. Now, the word urged, that has a lot of emotion behind it. I mean, he still is human. <laughs> and he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And I'll tell you, when they heard what was happening and what he had to say, they had to be beside themselves in a lot of ways. And then it tells us that in verse 19 that during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel specifically in a vision. We don't know if he had fallen asleep in prayer maybe and he got a vision or if he had a... We don't have any idea. God gave him a vision of the king's prayer. Now, this is a good time for us to just stop a little minute and, and talk about prayer just for a very short time. Psalm 34, verse 4 and 5. In the New Living Translation, it reads this way. The psalmist writes, I prayed to the Lord, and he answered me. He freed me from all my fears. Those who look to him, the Lord, for help will be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame will darken their faces. This is a great prayer. First, he prayed to the Lord. He had a relationship with the Lord. And, and the Lord answered him. And I've used this phrase a lot. It comes from Tim Keller. God always answers our prayers better than we pray them. He really does, even though sometimes we think, well, I prayed and this happened or this didn't happen. What happened was what's supposed to happen, and it was for your good and, his, and God's glory. And, and in this case, he said, I prayed, and he answered me, and he freed me from all my fears. It, it, we're supposed to give the Lord our fears, our troubles, and to give them to him and to trust him. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and all of that type of thing. Uh, you, you, just, you need to just give me your troubles, and I'll take care of you. And uh, then it goes on to say, the psalmist, those who look to him, God, the Lord, for help, will be radiant with joy. That's got to be true if we really believe what the Bible says about prayer, what the Bible says about God. If we really believe it, then joy is the only answer to that in our attitude. And then I like this little phrase, no shadow of shame will darken their faces. In other words, if we were really praying and we really believe God, we won't be going around with long faces saying, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. I wish Valerie wasn't here. <laughs> God always hears 
the prayers of his children. And as I said, he always answers better than we pray, and he's always on time. And the best way we learn that is to follow him for a long time. I can look back now and see times when I thought, why didn't he answer that? And I'm so glad that he didn't answer the way I wanted him to. Well, Daniel's had this vision. And it says to us in verse 19, then Daniel praised the God of heaven. God gave him that vision. Now, again, he praised the God of heaven because he, under, he knew who God was. He understood God. He knew God's attributes. There's a book that I've asked you to read over and over again. I hope many of you, if not all, have. The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. There's no better book to understand the attributes of God. There's more academic books, but there's no better practical books anywhere than to understand God's attributes. And the theme of the book, I've changed just some of the words a little bit, but uh, is this. It's right at the front when you start to read the book. It says what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. That's the most important thing about us. So here is what came into Daniel's mind. Because the first thing he does is he basically makes up a psalm. We'll call it Daniel's psalm. It's verse 20. And he said in the psalm, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. What you're seeing in just that one line, the name of God means praise be to all who God is, all that he knows of God, and he sees God as eternal forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. God does that. He changes times and seasons. Now, that doesn't mean he changed summer to winter. That's, we're promised in the Bible there'll always be summer and fall and spring and all of that. That's really not what it means. It, it's more of a metaphor that there's different times in our life, and God will change those times for us. And then this should encourage us, especially these days, he deposes kings and raises up others. And let me just read it in a different way. He deposes prime ministers and raises up others. He deposes presidents and raises up others. He deposes dictators and raises up others. I like he deposes them, but I don't like that he raises some of the ones up that I wouldn't have raised up. And then it says that he gives wisdom. Wisdom is the most needed thing in the world today. And it only comes from God. To the wise, he gives, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. And then he, re he reveals deep and hidden things. That's what he's just done for Daniel. And he knows what lies in darkness. It's, just because it's dark doesn't mean God can't see. I know it's a silly illustration, but it's true. And light dwells with him. God is light. It's one of his characters. And I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me, Daniel says, wisdom and power. And you have made known to me what we asked of you. And you've made known to us the dream of the king. Isn't that amazing? I mean, he believes it. Now, God always knew the dream. He authored it. Daniel had not even approached the king with the answer yet, but was certain that he had heard correctly from God. I mean, this is a great picture of biblical faith. God always answers prayers better than we pray them. You already said that, Pastor Carl. I know, three times. Yeah, on purpose. Daniel knows the dream and its meaning, realizing God is going to remove Nebuchadnezzar and three other kings over time. Now, we must understand that whoever is in power is there only as God wills. Uh, the Apostle Paul handles this a lot in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 13, verse 1, the whole chapter is about this, but just that one verse, Paul writes, everyone must submit to governing authorities. And I'll just say, unless they tell us to do something against the Word of God, uh, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. We may not like who he's placed. Nevertheless, that's the way it is. God has put that person there for a reason. And uh, uh, we're also to be men and women of prayer. I just read of uh, 
well-known reporter. You're all hearing about him recently. He did this speech on Saturday. It's an incredible speech. And the main point of his speech is we all need to pray, especially for our government. Paul wrote to Timothy in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, and he says, I urge you, Timothy, first of all, to pray for all people and ask God to help them and intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them, but pray this way for kings, for presidents, for dictators, for prime ministers, and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. Who knows what God would do if we really did pray every day? Daniel is about to talk to the most powerful ruler in the world. And he knows what Proverbs 21.1 says. He may not have had a Bible to find Proverbs 21.1, but he understands what it says. The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. He's in charge. Well, verse 24 Then Daniel went to Arioch, who the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to Arioch, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I'll interpret his dream for him. Now, it's amazing to me that Arioch agreed to do that. He believed Daniel. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said to the king, he didn't say, "Uh, king, I think this guy might know your dream. No, he didn't say that. He said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. Now, he's been playing a little bit of politics here. Daniel's already talked to the king. The king's interviewed him before. So Arioch's sort of taken advantage of this, and he's, he knows that he'd be in a lot of trouble if this isn't true, but he's sure it's going to be true. And then the king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, that was the Babylonian name given to him, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Now, it's Obvious, I think, that the king did not really believe Daniel could interpret the dream any more than the scholars, enchanters, astrologers could do it. And Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner, none of those that you have, can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. It's interesting as you read about Daniel all the way through the book and you read about the Apostle Paul, neither one of them could talk to somebody that was above them or whoever they were without explaining what we call the gospel, the good news about what God has done. And that's exactly what he's doing. And when he says what will happen in days to come, it can be translated, you might have a Bible that reads in the latter days or the last days. So this is an important phrase because it's used in other places in the Old Testament and refers to the Messianic age where we're in now, where Jesus came, and the whole rest of earthly history. It's amazing. Your dream and the vision that passed through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. As you were lying there, he doesn't say it, but the king was really disturbed, As you're lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. (laughs) There is... There's tremendous humility here. And by the way, humility is not a character trait. It's a way, of, a way of behaving. Probably the reason Nebuchadnezzar was thinking of the future was due to the vulnerability of his present position, fearing that some superior power might depose him. Now look at verse 31. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue. At that point, the king knows, he knows my dream. 
an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold. Its chest and arms of silver. Silver's worth less than gold. Its belly and thighs of bronze. Bronze is worth less than silver. Its legs of iron. Iron is worth less than bronze. Its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. It was mixed. And while you were watching, a rock, this is a small rock, was cut out, but not by human hands. So it's something supernatural. The king saw it and recognized it right away what he's talking about. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. So the whole thing would have just collapsed down. And then the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without a trace. Just like that, it's gone. But the rock, the small rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, the rock represents Jesus who came from Mary's womb and introduced us to the kingdom of God, which is the rule of Christ in our hearts. Commentator Rodney Stortz puts it this way, Christianity is not an ethic whereby if we keep the Ten Commandments, we're good Christians. Christianity is not a philosophy whereby if we think a certain way, we're good Christians. Christianity is not a religion whereby if we do certain religious rituals, we're good Christians. No. Christianity is the miracle of a changed heart and a personal relationship with the living God. No one can become a Christian without being changed. The rock represented Jesus during his first coming, and the sudden growth of the rock into a mountain represents Jesus' return as he promised his disciples before ascending to heaven. We will see this in far more detail later in our Daniel study. Now look back at your Bibles, verse 36. This was the dream, and now we'll interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. I can just see Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, yeah. The God of heaven is giving you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them. And I could just imagine Daniel saying this. You are that head of gold. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar must have just been, wow. It shouldn't be the case if he really listened to what Daniel said. But right now, he, he was just thinking about the head of gold, and he's the king. A guy named Bedex writes, Never was there on earth any city greater and more awe-inspiring. Even Rome, in its greatest splendor, was, comparatively speaking, no more than an unplanned pile of palaces and temples placed on seven hills. When Herodias, the, the, the historian, well-known ancient historian, visited Babylon... 100 years after Nebuchadnezzar, he wrote that in all his life he had never seen more gold nor imagined there could be so much. It was pure glitter from the palace to the Ishtar gate. Now look at verse 39. And after you, Nebuchadnezzar, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon will come to an end, and it will not last forever. The kingdom that follows will be weaker in leadership or weaker in government than Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. The following empires represented by the statue were larger in geography but weaker in leadership. John Calvin points out that the morality of each kingdom declined because we know what all these kingdoms were. The world will not be improving morally as time goes on. The world will, in fact, be devolving morally. And then he, this is Daniel still talking to the king. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Now, there's no way that 
Daniel could have known what we now know historically. I mean, the third kingdom uh, that would rule over the whole earth was Greece. Alexander the Great, if you need to be reading history to not to realize what we're even going through today. Alexander the Great was the greatest general in ancient times. It's amazing reading about him. He conquered and ruled the known world of his time. And after he had literally defeated the whole world, he just wept because he was so intense. He, he was, he just like, there was no purpose in life anymore. He was now on the top of the heap. And he died uh, at Babylon, uh, his vitality exhausted before he was 33 years old. He drank too much. His vitality was totally gone. He was ruined. And during his lifetime, his soldiers under his command were dressed in bronze and brass helmets and breastplates and shields and swords. That's, I've just literally read a quote from David Jeremiah. If you want to know about end time stuff, just go to YouTube, put in the word David Jeremiah, and he is the best prophecy teacher I think any we've ever seen. Now read his books, especially his book. He wrote a novel on Daniel, which is gripping. Now I may have already mentioned it. I did, as a matter of fact, but it's significant that gold is worth more than silver, and silver is worth more than bronze, and bronze is worth more than clay. So the statue was a, has a very heavy head and very weak feet. I don't know if my head's heavy, but my feet are a mess. <laughs> but I'm not that statue. We will look into it in more detail later, but the statue represents Babylon, then the Medo-Persian Empire, then Greece and Alexander the Great, which became the largest empire of ancient times, and then the Roman Empire. It's perfect. Long time before those empires came around. Now, verse 40, finally, king, remember, he's still talking to the king. The king's sitting there just amazed. Finally, there'll be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. And as the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes of clay. Now, the Roman Empire uh, swallowed up all the previous world empires and dominated almost all of Europe. If you read uh, the history of the Roman Empire, you'll understand everything that's happening today. Nothing has changed. There's an important thought here. The Roman Empire, in all its hundreds of years, almost a thousand years, never obtained unity. There were many great statesmen and attempts at intermarriage agreements, that's the way the country sometime came together, between different kings, but nothing they did ended in unity or any kind of what we would call a one-world government. We humans are completely incapable of obtaining world peace. Now, I'm all for every attempt that can be made for peace because then it continually proves the Bible is true. Outside of the return of Jesus, we will never obtain global peace except when the Antichrist at the helm of the revived Roman Empire, and we'll learn about that later, obtains peace for a short period of time. The ten toes represent ten kings, but we cannot discern from the statue until chapter 7, and to do that, we'll have to look at Revelation 13 and 17. So when we get to chapter 7, we'll find out all about the ten toes, and we'll learn from the Revelation, the last book in the Bible, uh, 13 and 17, and, uh, and we'll understand then what those ten toes are all about. Because the toes are of clay, we can discern that these governments would be shaky and unstable, to say the least. Now, 
in the statue, this is the last world power, and then the Messiah comes who will reign forever. Some ask if America is in the picture. It doesn't seem to be. And then it's often asked, will America fall and become ineffective before them? Well, in my estimation, it already has. Now, to think about this, some of you who are older, in my lifetime, I have watched as the British Empire disintegrated. It used to be said, the sun never sets on the British Empire. And I'm old enough to remember the, not only the saying, but the reality of that. Certainly not true anymore. And I've watched Russia collapse in 1991. I remember exactly where I was when the Soviet Union caved in. I remember exactly where I was. And many other countries have collapsed overnight. So why would we think this could not happen to America? You know, it's so important. I have a saying that I've picked up from a friend of mine who's now in heaven. I say it all the time. Someone who won't read is no better than someone who can't read. You need to read history. It will encourage you. I've taken the time over a lot of years to read a biography of every president. On some of them, I've read a couple or three biographies, and the, I've learned so much. Uh, nothing really surprises me. It discourages me. makes me sad sometimes. Uh, but it's sort of like, oh, well, I've seen all this before. I read the books. But they're also very encouraging. And as, there's a saying that everybody knows, if you don't learn from history, then we're, we're going to repeat it. And right now, we're not learning from history. And I read an article recently that I hope isn't true, but probably is, saying that most Americans today don't even know what's going on in the world. They're so busy worrying about themselves. And therefore, when that happens, uh, people tend to be apathetic, and then it just goes right down the drain again. Therefore, here's a lesson to learn in all this. Because we can see that the world is not like it's going to eventually end, and we'll learn all about that in the new heavens and the new earth and all of that. But let's not fall in love with the world. I wonder if we really understand that. John, the apostle, wrote the book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John, the apostle, wrote the Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Uh, John then wrote three small letters. First uh, John... 2nd John and 3rd John. Uh, the, the first one's five chapters and the others are just very small uh, letters. And in 1st John chapter 2, verse 15, in the Message Bible, I think it's best here, reads this way. Don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out the love for our Father in heaven, for Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, that's called the pride of life, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolates you from Him. The world, I mean, you think of, you know, Alexander the Great conquered the whole known world. And he ended up totally depressed and drunk and dead. It just isolates you from him, it tells us. The world and all of its wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. It's important we learn what this really means. This is saying, what's your priority? What do you really care about in life? It doesn't mean that we can't have a nice car or a nice home or achieve academic success or athletic uh, uh, medals or all of those types of things. God made us to live uh, a life together, and all of these things are part of our lives. But if that becomes your life, uh, then it will really disappoint you. When I was in uh, uh, North Park Community Chapel, London, Ontario, I met, a, I'm trying to remember his name, Yellow Bell, if you can remember, a football player I met who had a ministry to retired football players. And I forget his name. Do you remember? John was his first name. He was a, a Dallas Cowboy. And he was a really solid Christian, a wonderful guy. And he told me story after story about what happens to, in his case, football players. 
as he says, here's what it's like. You're in Dallas. You're a Dallas Cowboy. In those days, they were America's team. They won everything, had the best cheerleaders, all that kind of stuff. And he says, you're there, and you've got, you know, on Sunday, you've got tens of thousands of people screaming at you, sometimes screaming your name and go, and you're out on the streets of Dallas, and they recognize you, and the car dealers give you a free car, and they always want to say that so-and-so, a Dallas Cowboy bought a car at our dealership, and, and he, he told about all the things that happened, and then you retire, and in a lot of their cases, you were looking at uh, late 20s, early 30s, and now nobody cares about you anymore. And he says they go into deep depressions. Even if they had put their money in stocks and things, and they made money and everything, the majority of them really need a lot of help, because if that's your life, it's going to let you down every single time. And so we're not to love the world, but we're to love God who made the world and gave us incredible abilities to be able to be useful in the world and leave behind a, uh, a reputation. I watched Charles Stanley's funeral uh, service tonight before I came, and uh, thousands of people are there. This 92 years old, one of the great preachers of all time. And uh, uh, now he's in heaven, and he's left behind an incredible legacy. When all of the things people talked about, they seldom, a few times, but seldom talked about his books, or, or nobody ever talked about what kind of house he owned or anything like that. They talked about his character and, and what he did and how he helped people and the legacy he left behind. Well, that's too much. That's not in my notes here, and so it's going to be a little later. Uh, verse 44. In the time of those kings, remember now, let's just make sure we get back in mindset. Daniel speaking. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. Verse 45, this is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. So the picture of the stone not made by hands is a supernatural picture of the sudden destruction of world empires that are blown away like dust and no longer exist. The Bible gives us several pictures of Jesus as a rock or a stone. The rock that Moses struck in the desert uh, represented Christ. If we read 1 Corinthians 13, that's Exodus 17. You understand it by reading 1 Corinthians 13. It talks about that rock and, uh, and it being representing Jesus. Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah in Romans chapter 9, calling Jesus a stumbling stone. Remember, that's that's six, seven hundred years before Jesus set foot on this earth, and also Jesus is the cornerstone of Isaiah chapter 28. And the point, the point is, the rock of the second coming will destroy the kingdoms of the earth. It should be emphasized that this stone hit the feet, and all human kingdoms end it. The stone comes at the end of the rule of many kingdoms. It has always been God's plan that considerable time would pass before his second coming. And by the way, the picture of the stone not by human hands surely is a reference to the supernatural Christ who was not conceived by human means, but by the Holy Spirit, as the angel said to Mary. And then still verse 45, Daniel speaking, the great God, now this is really something, has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Now, you'll see in a minute that the king was kind of looking past some of the... He wasn't paying attention to the whole thing. But here's what he did. Look at verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, the man that was going to cut everybody to pieces and ruin their houses and all of that stuff, King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel. Oh, I'm sorry, it's not his prostate, it's prostrate. <laughs> <laughs> You see, if you had a, a much younger pastor, that would have never happened. <laughs> I 
Oh, boy. Uh, let's, let's try to start verse 46 again. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar <laughs> fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. Now, this would have been embarrassing for Daniel. And I believe that Daniel had something to say to the king that changed the king's perspective. Uh, so I believe there's a conversation goes on here that in Daniel, who wrote this, in his humility, he hasn't put it in. And then verse 47 says, the king said to Daniel, surely your God, notice this big G, G-O-D, God, is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. He's finally getting the point that it comes from God. Now imagine the most powerful leader in the world bowing before a young Jewish boy and acknowledging the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. Of course, the reality is that Nebuchadnezzar had lots of room to add another small g God to the pantheon of gods he believed in. So he's not really believing in God. And notice that the king did not bow before God, but only knew about him. That's, this is really important. Uh, there are many in churches today who agree with the facts about Jesus, but have never given their lives to Jesus. Make sure that isn't you tonight. In John chapter 17, that's the Lord's real prayer. That's where he's praying before he goes to the cross. Sweating drops of blood. He says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you. Who? Those who receive Christ. They may know you. Know is a relational word the only true God, a relationship with God. And Jesus, who is the Messiah, Jesus is praying this. He's saying, and me, whom you have sent. So how do you obtain eternal life? By knowing God and knowing his son, Jesus, by receiving him as Lord and Savior. Now look at verse 28. Then the king placed this young Jewish man, Daniel, in a high position and lavished many gifts on him, just like he had promised the astrologers and all of them, and he made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its wise men. And moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Notice that's, the, that's not the Hebrew names any longer. That's the Babylonian names. Uh, he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon. They were young too, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Now, no doubt, Daniel would have taught the Hebrew scriptures to these men he is now in charge of, these scholars, these astrologers. And especially he would have taught about the prophet Jeremiah and his clear prophecy that Jerusalem would be taken captive by the Babylonians in chapter 9. And we'll study that in some detail. Uh, well, we'll study that. It's not in chapter 9, but in Jeremiah's writings, we'll study that in chapter 9 in Daniel. And it's interesting to note, this is just amazing how God works. It's interesting to note that when Jesus was born... The wise men from the east, you've heard about them, the three wise men, we don't know that there's three, but the wise men from the east would have been ancestors of these men under Daniel's teaching, and that is why they traveled to Mary and Joseph's house to give gifts to the baby Jesus. I mean, how wonderful are the works of God. Now, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has just been told that his kingdom would fall, but he is now acting as if he was going to rule forever. In, in a sense, it went right over his gold head. <laughs> he asked no questions of Daniel about the true meaning of the statue or, her, or how long it would be before his kingdom is defeated. Instead, he honors Daniel and keeps going along with life as if he hadn't heard the interpretation of the dream. I mean, isn't that how many Christians live their lives? 
even Christians who are well taught about the soon coming of the kingdom of God, because we're certainly on the edge of that happening. I uh, audited a course a few years ago at Reformed Seminary in Orlando, years ago, because it was taught by D.A. Carson, the ultimate Greek scholar and commentary writer alive today. Oh, I learned a lot in that class and got to talk to him a lot. But uh, since I was only auditing, I was not tested. So here's something I want us to think about. We, Christian, are not to audit life, but we're saved to participate fully in life and be tested by it and reward it in eternity. Final thought. Since the world we are living in is clearly temporary, and the rest of Daniel will make that clear, the question for all of us is, what should our priorities be? Daniel lived for 70 years in a foreign land, learning a foreign language among a population that worshiped foreign false gods, yet he maintained his commitment to our creator God and never complained about his circumstances and won the respect of powerful leaders without giving in to their pagan ways. So I don't, I don't like to say this because I'm guilty, but quit your belly aching. I know Valeriel has something to say later. <laughs> Instead, let us worship God and make His will our will as it is revealed to us in the Bible. Stand with me and we'll pray and worship with another song. Father, I'm so thankful for the book of Daniel. Uh, Father, I'm thankful for all of the prophecy and the detail we'll learn before we get through with the book, and it'll be amazing and all that, but I'm mostly thankful for Daniel and, and uh, for his faith in you and the way he lived in, the, in what we would consider, any of us here, terrible circumstances. Even though he was in a king's palace, he never gave in to his own flesh, to his own humanness. Instead, he trusted you all the way through without complaint. Oh, Father, make us more and more like, he, like Daniel. Uh, and make us uh, men and women who uh, love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and who only want your will in our lives because that's what will give us pleasure. That's what will give us joy even when things don't always go the way we'd like. And Father, thank you that we can know for sure that we have eternity. If we receive Jesus into our life, we know that should our hearts stop this moment, that we'd be in the presence of Jesus and there's nothing we could even, no mind can even imagine how wonderful that eternity will be. In Jesus' name, amen.